Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Find Your Feet podcast. My name is obviously Hanny Olsen. I am the founder of this series. I've actually made a bit of a sea change today and come up to Sydney to interview Julia Thompson, who is a psychologist working with the Butterfly Foundation and the main support personnel behind the National Helpline. The Butterfly Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation supported by the government to support people who are experiencing eating disorders and also their support networks and carers around them. Eating disorders, as I came to realise from this discussion with Juliet, are incredibly complex and very prevalent in today's society. I have to admit too that I have had my own previous experiences with eating disorders where I suffered from anorexia and also a disordered approach to nutrition for many years during my elite marathon and athletics career. I just can't believe that over a million Australians experience this. And when I think that our population in Australia is just over 20 million people, then when I look around the streets of Sydney here and think one in 20 people walking along the street have been diagnosed with a nutritional disorder, that being anorexia, bulimia or binge eating. So this doesn't, this figure doesn't even take into consideration the rising prevalence of what has become known as orthorexia or a fascination with healthy nutrition and exercise. The Butterfly Foundation was established in 2002 when a lady by the name of Claire Vickery became acutely aware that there were a lack of resources available for her and her two daughters who were suffering from anorexia themselves. And since then, the Butterfly Foundation has really grown into a very big organisation, although when I visited the premises today, I realised how small it actually is. I just can't stress enough how complex the relationship is for athletes, whether you're recreational or elite, and their support networks around them to navigate that fine line between optimal health and well-being and will add in their weight for performance. It is incredibly tough, and I tried to broached this topic today in this podcast with Juliet and I think we did it well and in a sensitive manner. I won't go into any more detail now, I'll let Juliet speak for herself but on this note I just really want to thank my own support network, uh, Find Your Feet and our wonderful team and obviously my husband Graham who are back home working hard in the business Find Your Feet to support me to provide this free podcast to our community because I really believe that the topics that we're raising in the podcast are so vital uh, to be heard and vital to act on this one included so thanks to find your feet and if you can continue to support us in any way we obviously have a fantastic retail store an online retail store the find your feet tours which are running tours that go globally and I am one of the guides of that and also to all the online educational resources that we're providing. So without further ado, let's jump into this podcast with Juliet Thompson. I think that you're going to find it incredibly informative. (music) 
So, Julia, thank you for having me here in Sydney. I've come all the way from Hobart, and I definitely feel like the country bumpkin in the big smoke. Um, I just, I'm really excited today to have a conversation. I think to also to open up about my own story mm-hmm. that has links back to eating disorders and my own um, battle for quite a while was actually with anorexia and the sort of fine line that I walked as an elite endurance runner sure. and trying to maintain optimal health through nutrition. But I'm also really interested to know what you know about this world and my understanding is that you work as a psychologist here for the Butterfly Foundation and specialise with people with eating disorders. So I just wanted like if I got that right yes, and yes. how you got personally involved with working in the eating disorder sphere. Um, well, great to have you along today. I'm really Thanks. glad that you're able to um, connect with us here and talk about this really, really important issue generally, but also in the world of sport and elite sport. Um, wow, so how did I get into this field? In, in some ways, I fell into it because the opportunities presented themselves at exactly the right moments in my psychology training, um, having internships with specialists. Um, and another way, I think it has been an area that has always been of interest to me, um, potentially because of my personal interest in um, sport and nutrition. As I mentioned earlier, I'm in no 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 way an athlete or was an athlete, but um, I definitely have been involved. Um, in sport in a competitive sense um, where you know that that was my sole focus for a few years competing so um, yeah it's led me to um, be in a field that I find fascinating Um, I find it's easy to come to work every day because there's a real need um, and I feel like this work absolutely has to be done um, yeah, so quite passionate about it. I, I think on behalf of anyone listening, I just really want to thank you for dedicating your life, I guess, at this point to the really the fight against probably athletes, particularly, biggest competitor, I think. Mm. Um, when you get to that elite tier and you're trying to find those one percenters, it's very easy to be walking along a tightrope. And yeah. I think it sounds like, you know, not only is this, you know, an interest and something that you're fascinated by, but it's also something that you feel a very strong need to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I guess to frame the discussion today, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an outline about the scope of work done here at the Butterfly Foundation because this building is amazing. Um, Yeah, so much going on here. There is a lot going on here. Um, I guess Butterfly does, the Butterfly Foundation um, does a few things and I'll go into that in a moment. Um, But its overarching purpose is to advocate for those people with lived experience and to advocate for their their needs and the holes in the care that exists currently. So with that in mind, um, we do that through a little, a few different arms or departments of Butterfly, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, that include advocacy education, where we go out to schools and provide very early um, education in the realm of just body image and not so much eating disorders, but to that young population, having a healthy body image. Um, 
we have a research, uh, the Butterfly Research Institute, that's focusing on really um, bringing together um, the research that needs to happen and facilitating that. Uh, we have clinical services, which consists of um, our treatment programs, our intense outpatient programs, all the face-to-face -face, um, programs. We have a support um, support arms, so support groups, and we're located in a few different places across Australia. Mm. So um, we've just um, partnered with Tread in Tasmania um, and uh, been in Adelaide and Townsville. So we've got a few different support options there. Yeah. And I suppose the last... Um, one of the last things that we do is run the Butterfly National Helpline and that's the service that I'm the manager of. Mm -hmm. And so I, I suppose we can chat about that a little bit later. But Yeah, I'd love to hear yeah. about this and probably a little bit later um, if that's okay yeah, because yeah. I feel like in order to understand the significance of the helpline, I guess we probably need mm. to understand the significance of the challenges that some people mm. are facing. I guess... In, in summary then, what is it that the Butterfly Foundation is actually trying to achieve? You mm. sort of talk, is it like awareness or is it treatment or is it a bit of everything? Look, I think um, we do everything with the knowledge that we are trying to fill the gaps and mm -hmm. identify and fill, fill the gaps where it, they can't be filled elsewhere. And as soon as we can hand over... Um, what we do where we fill the gaps to someone that can, can do it long term, if, if that's um, a possibility, we're more than happy to do that. So we're really about being on the frontier and hearing and working with those with a lived experience and saying, well, you know, where, where are the gaps and what can we do about it? So... I feel my, my nan, <laughs> just a slight diversion, my nan, she's 93 and she's just brought, bought a bright red sports mini. <laughs> Great. Every time now I walk along the street, I feel like I see bright red sports minis. Yes. And I mm -hmm. feel like coming from a background of my challenges with disordered mm -hmm. eating, I feel like there is a bit of the red mini phenomenon mm. happening that once you have that lived experience, you identify a lot more with the prevalence of it. But do you have any understanding about what the prevalence of eating disorders are in Australia? I think your listeners might be surprised to hear that um, over a million Australians currently yeah. have an eating disorder. That's the best stat that we That's have like at the moment. That's like one in 20. Yeah. And approximately 10% of Australians um, will have an eating disorder at some time in their life. And if you're female, that, that goes up to 15%. So that is... Um, you know stats that of, of where we know that person has an eating disorder and, and we'll talk about this I suppose in a little while but that's a diagnosed clinical eating disorder that's not even speaking about people who are on the cusp and may have you know disordered eating but not quite the amount of symptoms or criteria for the full diagnosis yeah except that's actually really really scary yeah and especially if that's just diagnosed um, because I think there'd be a lot of secret closet absolutely problems yeah. out there um, yeah. so how are we defining eating disorder then are we are we at the point of anorexia bulimia or are there scales below that and they're sort of at the tip of the the pyramid I guess if we're looking at it like that so I guess a lot of the work that um, we do in this field is framed by the DSM 
um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that psychologists, psychiatrists, health professionals use. Mm. And that sets out criteria for a few different categories of eating disorder, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, um, ARFID, and um, a category OSFED and UFED where it's um, some of the criteria are... Um, not as clear to fall into one of those other categories, but it's quite clear that there is an eating disorder there. So mm-hmm. we often talk about in the field um, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating as the main ones. Arthed is something that um, happens less often and um, happens more with young people, very mm-hmm. young people, so children. Mm-hmm. Um, less research done on that. And do you think that that orthorexia, which mm. is that obsession with healthy nutrition and often exercise tied in together, it, does that fall into this spectrum or is that still sitting in the wings and not part of that one in 20 in Australia statistic? Um, orthorexia is not in the DSM. It's relatively a, a new concept. Um and there's proponents on, you know, for, for either side for, for being its own unique um, set of um, symptoms and criteria um, and then others who argue that actually it is a slightly different presentation of anorexia but mm-hmm. essentially the, the core features are the same um, restriction over exercise etc so um, it is we're not getting another DSM for a while so at the moment it's on on the outer I think it's probably um something to keep chatting about at least and to keep having the conversation around is this um, a different illness or is it a part of what we already know about eating disorders? Yeah, because even last night I was just, you know, reflecting on my notes for today and just began doing a little bit more homework online and I started finding a huge number of articles. One actually came out yesterday, which was about um, how thin and strong is the new beautiful. Mm. So we're moving away from this image of women being stick thin model-like to very, very muscular and toned, but... As the article is pointing out, in order to have that physique, you actually also have to be very, very thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like with the rise of you know this and a lot of that, so that health movement and, and physical activity mm-hmm. movement, but also the rise of the complexities of what is healthy nutrition. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that orthorexia is really going to be something that needs to come on the radar. And maybe a redefinition of the way that we interpret anorexia it could still, mm. um, the core features may be exactly the same and fit into that, but um, we may learn that we need to identify it slightly differently and um, it might be a slightly different uh, reflection of the illness. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, my background when I really struggled at my height with anorexia was in the elite athletics Mm. and marathon scene. And, you know, we're looking back now eight eight years or so, ten years probably – Gosh, I'm growing, (laughs) growing up. But but I feel like then it was it was very much um, okay to be to be like this Mm. and accepted as part of I guess that uh, desire to run fast yet to be light. A number of the women that I actually ran with at the time, whether it was in training squads or against them in competition, have come out more publicly recently to speak about their experiences. So 
the likes of uh, Eloise Wellings, Lisa Corrigan, um, and then also more recently, Yana Pittman mm. came out about her story, actually with bulimia, but mm. I think the inference is the same, that when you do get to that level and you're vying for Commonwealth Games selection or marathons in my case, and you are achieving performances, you know, you know, for me at one point it was, you know, winning world titles, I knew all along that I was struggling with an eating disorder, but the results and then the accolades that come from mm. the results almost reinforcing that it's okay to kind of live in that way. So Absolutely. what you know, what are your thoughts around this just for now? I think that there um, is it is complex and as we mentioned before, a very thin line between performance and achievement in sport and the development of an eating disorder. I and I think that's probably quite a personal journey for each person. I mean, mm-hmm. um, hopefully we'll we'll talk later about um, the difference between normal and abnormal um, types of eating, and I think that can illuminate. But ultimately, I think a person um, needs to self-reflect and really have a think about the motivators, the drives. Um, the reasoning and how they honestly feel um, in the sense that if they woke up next week and were no longer an elite athlete, how mm. might their relationship with food and exercise be? Are they confident that they could revert to um, what is considered in our society relatively healthy um, normal relationship or do they think that the, the, the fears, the anxieties, um, the stress around food would still be there? Yeah, and that is definitely something I do want to talk about. Uh, but I'm then probably interested at this point, we've talked about prevalence, but mm. who are across the board in that one million people in Australia, who do you feel are most at risk mm. with the development of an eating disorder? Well, we know that females generally are most at risk, but I think I need to caveat that with a really important point, and that is males, unfortunately, as well, um, are at risk and do develop all eating disorders the same, you know, in the same mm-hmm. way that, that women do. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one way to think about uh, risk factors is putting each into three different categories. You've got your psychological categories and they consist of things like someone's personality traits. Mm-hmm. Personality traits are, you know, it's not helpful often to think about them as good or bad each personality trait often has a flip side in a way that that personality trait can be very helpful in some circumstances and very unhelpful in others. So for something like perfectionism, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a bad personality trait. That trait can help someone achieve a lot in their life. And if you are someone in a career that requires, say, detailed-oriented, perfect thinking, whether it might be an accountant, you know, you've got to have numbers exactly right or things won't equal at the end that can be enormously helpful but when that personality trait um, is used or is um, heightened for something that's not helpful then that's where the problem is so something like perfectionism um, as a personality trait is a risk factor for an eating disorder as is um, Exact thinking styles, black and white thinking um, and I can, I can tell you, you know, perhaps thinking these are 
traits that are useful in sport and they absolutely are um oh, they are to a degree to a degree um, that's the working as a life coach more these days it is amazing how many people myself included at times struggle to see the shade of gray yes in there. yes yeah. exactly and i think that um when you're talking about how to protect yourself as an athlete from an eating disorder, I would encourage people to have a think about working on their their mentality, their mental state, their mm. ability to see grey, what's it like and how it works for them to use um, their perfectionism and achievement-oriented and competitiveness in healthy ways and complemented by the ability to see things into perspective and the black and white at uh, the the grey and mm. not just the black and white mm-hmm. yeah. interestingly for psychological it's not just personality traits that people might first think about risk factors it's also um the way that people manage and deal with emotions so that <laughs> we know people who are naturally conflict avoidant um have a higher you know higher risk factor um at the same time as those who have a lot, lot of difficulty understanding and expressing their emotions. So something worth mentioning now before I go on to the other risk factors is it's it's like um, a soup with lots of different ingredients mm. and everyone's soup is different. So the weight of each ingredient is, is going to be different for everyone. Therefore, you can't – it's not prescriptive or you have one plus one and then you eat, have an eating disorder. It doesn't work like that for someone – they may not have any of those personality traits, yet other factors have contributed significantly to the development of the eating disorder. Whereas another person, they may you know, significantly struggle with those personality factors and they don't have any other or mm. a mix of all of them. So I'll just put that in all in context. And I mean, we're going to come and talk a lot more about treatment later on, mm-hmm. but that must make it so complex for you um, mm-hmm. in that psychology, which is part of the front line of treatment, mm-hmm. um, to navigate through that soup and to tease yeah. out the different ingredients yeah. to work on, um, you know, how much of this is an emotional intelligence, how much of this is like yeah. a personality trait that you maybe you can't change, but you can help channel, like is that correct absolutely yeah and that's what makes the um this illness complex and it can Mm. be a long difficult hard journey to Mm. recovery it's absolutely possible and hopefully we'll talk more about that later but um yeah it's complex and it takes time and patience as well with with your health professionals as well as they as they try to walk with you in working out well what's what's happening here um how has this come to be and how do we move forward from that Mm -hmm. that place Mm -hmm. um so some other factors that health professionals may, may think about as well is the societal and environmental aspect so um what unique society both the, the, the micro and the macro we're all aware of our macro um, society in Australia but what environment does that person come from are they in a group of people or a profession um, or a hobby that puts a lot of emphasis on appearance and performance such as athletes um, and then environmental we're talking about stresses and what's happened to that person in their life so we know abuse um, unfortunately is a risk factor for a later development of an eating disorder mm-hmm. another huge one that's very worth mentioning because it's probably one of the strongest um, predictors or str- um, triggers is dieting mm-hmm. which is really interesting when you start looking at the um, 
space. Yeah, as in people get on a bandwagon of a, a diet or a nutritional mm. style, but then almost can't, don't know where to stop, or is it the diet themselves that's the problem? Do you know what I mean? I would say personally, it's not the diet that's the problem, mm-hmm. it's the person, the, the mentality, the and mentality behind that, that comes to it. So yeah. just because someone's on something that looks like an extreme diet doesn't necessarily mean they have an eating disorder. They may, but it, it, it's not um, – you can't diagnose someone with an eating disorder because they're on a specific diet. Mm-hmm. It's rather how, how they approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that happens in diets is linked to the biological aspect, the last category of risk factors, and that is the overriding of natural hunger and fullness. Um, and when you start – um, changing and overriding those natural hormonal um, drives in your body, that's where complications can start as well. So the, the last category, the biological, we know that people who um, have had an eating disorder diagnosis in their family um, are at higher risk. And the exact reasons for that may be twofold. One, the biological aspect, both in personality structure, um, but also the um, natural hunger, appetite, um, gut role. So people that are very sensitive to the feeling of fullness will um, be at more of a risk for something like anorexia Mm -hmm. than people who aren't. Similarly, people who don't have strong, very strong hunger drives may be more at risk for anorexia. So there's a lot of factors going on. Mm, that huge speaks. number. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wrote, I wrote them down and looking at them on paper. I mean, that soup is, yeah. it's like minestrone. It's, it's incredibly <laughs> it, it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're risk factors. Mm. They're not triggers necessarily. Big, like I'm, I guess my brain's thinking of them mm. as like seeds that are lying on the ground but mm. haven't yet sprouted or germinated sure. as in, and again, again, like to understand the complexity of it, I guess you always draw from your own experiences. Mm. But for me, I probably have a lot of the risk factors to be mm. honest. Mm. But for me, it wasn't until a certain period in my yeah. life when things got incredibly complex and this life that I'd always known was suddenly thrown out the window and I felt like my life was out of control that then this sort of more controlled personality style was starting to really kick in so what are what are some of the triggers that you see in your world or the patterns that form around these risk factors sure there is overlap so I mentioned stress before and and stress is absolutely something that can um supercharge unfortunately the development of an eating disorder um, because it um, often has a person using coping strategies that aren't helpful Mm -hmm. so that's one way that stress can um, be a trigger one one of many triggers for an eating disorder Um, what we see on a day-to-day basis I mean we see a lot of different things everyone's unique and individual but some common themes um, dieting, as I mentioned before, someone mm. will say, "I started this diet and um, things were going fine for a while, and then I just got a little out of control, or you know, it started to take up a huge amount of my life that had a had life of its own, really." Um, so, dieting, um, 
more recently, and I, and I mentioned this before with um, changes in our society in terms of social media and um, the focus on um, thin and fit, I think you said before, mm. is um, the desire to be healthy. So mm. I've been hearing in the last few years um, more often people saying, you know, I just wanted to clean up my eating mm. um, and then that took a, a life on its own, you know, similar to dieting. Um, the other aspect is people who um, start to feel achievement mm. from directly or indirectly from their control of food, and that's what you mentioned earlier with athletes. Yeah. And I would say that's a secondary, um, a secondary achievement. You know, they've they've won their race, and they but they've just come th- through a month of changing their diet. Yeah. And that's a, probably more that elite end, but in the world that I spend most of my time working with, um, the, the same argument actually exists for training and mm. exercise habits. But you know, if we talk about an adult who may have entered their first ever 20-kilometre trail run, they don't even know if they can run that far. Mm. And then they do the work and they focus in a bit on nutrition and they focus in on their training and they make some adjustments in their life and they make that possible and they achieve that finish line. Yeah. It suddenly opens up this realm of like, wow, what's possible? What, yes. Like, where can I take this? And that journey, you know, I guess like then that's where those risk factors come into play. That not everyone's going to cross the finish line and, you know, start narrow focusing in on that mm. journey. But mm. but if you have some of these risk factors, I guess then that journey can can lead down that track. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think then that also brings back that conversation we started earlier, which is around, you know, success in something, whether it is like at that very elite level or crossing a finish line or even literally just some friends mentioning how great you're looking since you started these new mm. habits that recognition and that acknowledgement can become toxic if it's not careful. Yes. Yeah, that it reinforces these behaviours, um, extreme or not. Especially for someone who may have been struggling with low self-esteem yeah. um, or feeling lost in their life, for instance. So, so, so suddenly having praise and achievement is a huge thing that might have been a very new experience for that person. Okay. And I just wanted to, to talk about like some of these risk factors we talked about biological and we mm. talked about environment, but how does that fit into family and family structure? Yeah, so I guess my question really is around is there a risk factor around the way you are brought up or the way you're parented or the absence of parenting? I just sure. wondered. I think I have to um, put a caveat around this answer as well sure. because it is can be a myth um, that parents cause eating disorders and it's important to get clear on that. Mm. Parents and families do not directly, solely cause an eating disorder. No, that would be incredibly black and white. (laughs) Exactly. It's a whole lot more complex. But, you know, if you remember, I I mentioned stress. Mm -hmm. So if your family environment perhaps is stressful, well, then that might be a contributing Mm -hmm. factor. Okay. In terms of biological and inheriting risk, um, there is that biological aspect, but there's also the um, being exposed perhaps to unhealthy eating disordered behaviours. So if you, you know, for instance, um, a we know research tells us that 
um, women who have poor relationship to food, so anxious around food, um, their children, their young children, pick up on that. And they then may have these um, slightly different beliefs around food. Food is something to be anxious around. So there is a role modelling aspect potentially for some people in some families um, and then not in others as well. I mean, we come across a lot of um, people experiencing and, and their carers and their loved ones that for all intensive purposes there's nothing unusual in that family structure at all and mum and dad have a all their carers have a very healthy relationship to food so mm-hmm. it's important to again yeah see the the subtlety and the grain in this yeah and I can I'm really starting to see how it does all fit together you know when you add in then like friendships and mm-hmm. school environments and you could just see how those risk factors really can precipitate yes. in towards an eating disorder so when we talk about those risk factors, are they are they quite constant across those three uh, mm. eating disorders that you mentioned, the anorexia, the bulimia, and then the binge eating, or are some a little bit lenient towards others? Yeah, look, I think, um, again, this has to be framed in the context of eating disorder research as compared to, say, anxiety or depression is in its infancy. Mm. We don't know as much as we wish we knew. And so specific research on symptoms that lend itself to different um, illnesses um, is not 100% clear. Um, We can make some um, broad... um, There's broad um, understanding around something like perfectionism and... Um, sensitivity to uh, fullness um, and very uh, inability to cope with emotions might lend itself more to something like anorexia but interestingly we often think well people can often think about these diagnoses as very separate people might be surprised to know that one person can cycle through all of these diagnoses across their life so it's on a spectrum Mm. disordered eating and eating Mm. disorders and how that clusters together um is different often for for people so typical progression doesn't happen to everyone but might be um an experience of anorexia that moves into bulimia um maybe back and forth for a while then they may have episodes later of binge eating so there is in terms of risk factors and triggers um, that says a lot about those that, that um, those triggers are very much related to all the disorders. Mm. That makes sense. I just wondered then, Juliet, if we could just talk a bit about body image. Mm. I don't. I don't want to go into the whole like marketing and media, mm-hmm. and I think that's been done to death. But my understanding and my experience is lead me to believe that body image is only one part of the equation and that it isn't everyone who develops an eating disorder who looks in the mirror and has negative self-talk around their body image and stuff that I feel that that what you brought up earlier about that emotional intelligence and that emotional confusion can be another Mm. you know thing that someone can get hooked up on and I just wondered if we could talk about how much of it is not, not how much, that's probably an unfair question, but just talk about that relationship mm. between body image and eating disorders, but also the other risk factors there. Yeah, sure. 
Um, we know that body image does play a huge part in eating disorders, but that doesn't mean that everyone struggling is um, very, very focused on their body and wants to be thinner. Mm. Um, there is a, a common drawing that is circulated um, in the media when people talk about eating disorders of a, um, a person who is thinner looking in the mirror um, at a person who's larger implying that um, all people with eating disorders feel that they're larger. No, it just can't be true. I mean, Mm. it certainly wasn't true for me. Mm -hmm. I never looked in the mirror and went, oh, you're fat, you're ugly. Like, I never had that thought process. Exactly. And so that does not have to be present. Um, Someone in that situation, I'm I'm not sure of your experience, may understand that they're of a low weight Mm. and intellectually understand that, you know, the um, medical profession are telling them that, um, they need to put on weight because their health is seriously at risk and I understand that. Um, but in order to do that, um, there are things that need to happen that are too confronting, too hard, yes. too fearful, um, that genuinely cause that person to experience extraordinary levels of fear. Yeah. Um, and that's important for um, those in the community that don't haven't had and don't have an eating disorder. There is genuine terror around food and around eating so it's not as simple as convincing someone that um, they are indeed of a lower weight than um, they they think they are it's not it's not that simple and I definitely want to bring that discussion back into when we do talk about recovery because I don't you know there's also I feel like a misconception that to recover from an eating disorder you just need to literally put on body weight and get back to a healthy body weight and then you're Mm -hmm. you're healthy again but it is that psychological component um you know and and what you just said very much links into experiences I've had experiences with people I've worked with experiences of someone who even works for us Mm -hmm. um at find your feet is around this not having another coping mechanism Mm -hmm. and not really understanding that you don't actually have emotional intelligence um you know that when I first began working in my own recovery you know, being asked, like, what are you feeling now? And it's like, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. I've created a very great way to put up walls around emotions mm-hmm. and not feel them. And, I, you know, eating disorders is one way people cope with that lack of emotional intelligence and there are other coping mechanisms that yeah. are healthy and unhealthy. But, yeah, I, I'm glad we could actually talk around that relationship with body image because it, it was a very common question early on when I was actually seeking help was, that, you know, getting asked, like, well, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And it's like, well, I see honey. And like, I see someone who's fit and strong and healthy and paused, struggling, but could, didn't have the language around that emotional side. So it's great that you can um, express now that experience yeah. because there are a lot of myths and preconception and misconceptions about eating disorders that um, unfortunately get in the way of people's recovery. So it's important to to try and get as clear as possible about, what actually goes on yeah you know it definitely seems to be something that a bit like a lot of the other mental health challenges is something that's a bit of a taboo topic to talk about um you know it's definitely really hard but one um quote that actually yana had yana Pittman had about her um recovery was that when it was no longer a secret um, it didn't have the same vice on her, yeah. that it is a lot of that like secretive action. And I think that's also coming out in how much we're talking about this challenge. 
that must be quite a challenge for the Butterfly Foundation to overcome mm. that stigma. It is. It is yeah. absolutely. Um, I think a part of managing that is educating people, um, even those who haven't come across eating disorders in their life, of what it is. And it's not a choice. An eating disorder is not a choice. Mm-hmm. It is not a lifestyle that someone chooses. It is a at times um, horrific illness. Mm. I mean, the impacts are different for every person, but at times it's devastating. Um, and a person, when they're in the throes of their illness, doesn't have a lot of control around that. And it's, we try and educate the community about that um, and shed light on the fact that just like anxiety or just like depression or another physical illness, um, it's not in someone's um, immediate control and they need support and they need help. Because it it must be such a polarising illness for people and an isolating illness because, you know, if we were to talk about other coping mechanisms, say let's just bring in alcoholism for an example, like I think it's easier to understand why someone might pick up a glass of beer to kind of soothe an emotional Mm. trouble or a stress Mm. situation or, you know, some of those other risk factors we talked about. But I feel like it must be very hard for people on the outside to look in at an eating disorder and get their head around it and not understand how you couldn't be hungry or how you couldn't you see that of yourself in the mirror or do do you understand where I'm coming from and I think something that can aid in under uh, people understanding it is an eating disorder always serves a function for somebody there is always a function behind it and that the eating disorder is useful yes it has devastating impacts and um, recovery is about well, looking at what is that function and how can we um, fulfil that in a way that is more health- is healthier and is um, not going to put your life at risk. Mm-hmm. So am I able then to ask Juliet what you know about that fine line between normal and abnormal when it comes to the psychology of healthy nutrition and eating disorders Mm. (laughs) because it's it's so complex Mm. um it's especially complex when you add on that high performance environment particularly in the athlete world so i just wondered if you could talk us through that yes um i'll keep it thematic Mm. and brief because i think it is very complex and it's very personal um factors that i think need to be looked at first of all is flexibility Mm -hmm. and obviously when you're in elite sport your flexibility reduces because of your your goals um but it's about the mindset that you come to the sport or to eating um with so i guess what i mean by that is is there a very clear understanding of of why your nutrition is the way that it is Um, to achieve a certain outcome and Mm -hmm. do you have flexibility around that so for instance um, if it can't be the way that you planned and that your coach has planned um, how do you cope with that does it does it spur fear and anxiety and that black and white thinking and take a huge proportion in your life or is the approach oh okay well what else can I do in this situation given that I can't eat or do what I'd planned to do on my training schedule what else is possible and can I put this into perspective is this change is this one thing that I wasn't wasn't on my meal plan 
and I've eaten accidentally or I didn't know about, is that going to be a really big deal in the big scope of things or or not? And I think mm-hmm. people that are going down the disordered eating and eating disorder path may quickly lose that flexibility so that if one thing passes their lips or one thing happens in training that wasn't expected or wasn't planned for, it causes a lot of um, fear and anxiety. I guess then I could see that playing out in terms of actions is that sort of avoidance of circumstances that are yes. outside of your normal That's right. scope. That's yeah. right. Even things like choosing a cafe or... Yeah, social situations could be quite fear-encompassing. Exactly. So it's, again, about the mindset and how you feel about what's happening that's mm-hmm. most important. Um, so someone, an athlete, can have a very detailed and precise nutrition plan and have very high exercise training needs, and they don't necessarily have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect to you know, the line differentiating between abnormal and normal is thinking about something called values and seeing if the value of competing in that sport is impinging on any other values. So exactly what you spoke about a moment ago. So you might value achievement in in your sport, um, but you also might value family and family time and connection. And you might find that through your training and nutritional focus, you're taking away some of the time that you're putting into your family. You might say no to family events because there's a certain food present that um, causes you distress, or you might say no to a cafe where your friends mm. always meet. Mm. So then it's about having a think about, you know, what are my values? Am I happy with the way that they're proportioned? Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, how can I change that so I'm happy? That That's hard. Mm. And that's where I could see having support around you can make a huge difference, like what you're doing here at Butterfly Foundation, because I'm really not sure how many people are actually truly aware of what they value. Yes, because it's blurred, between, you know, by social media, by marketing, by mm. <laughs> so many factors. Absolutely. And that is one of the core things that we look at. Um, actually, in all illnesses, and as yeah. a psychologist, I would say, is a go-to thing to explore for anyone that walks into my office for anything um, because it informs so much of um, our happiness and, yeah. you know, what we want out of life. I will never forget the time when I first started working with um, a mentor that I've brought on whose background is psychology and he pushed this piece of paper in front of me um, on day one and sort of said, honey, I think we're going to have a look at your values. So <laughs> let's start with family. Like, can you rate on zero to ten, like, how important is family? And I, like, I have a, you know, complicated family history. I, I love my family. Mm. But at that moment in time, I just looked at him blankly and went, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. And then I remember him pushing it in front of me and went, friendship. And, you know, I'm, like, a quite an independent person and it's just part of my personality and, I, like, I love my friends. Mm. But I couldn't get my head around, can friends be really, really important, but can you still maintain that sense of independence? And, you know, like, yeah. and I, I just just remember this sheet of paper and I remember it after a while he just pulled it away and said I think we'll come back to that later <laughs> so yeah very um, informative experience for you just Incredible. even to have that idea of there's something here that 
I'd like to get my head around, I'd like to know better and I don't, you know, mm. even if I park that to come back to it later. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, mm. it took quite a long while to kind of come back to the same parking spot and have another go at it, but incredibly valuable. Yeah. yeah. But I have went off on a little sidetrack oh, again. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you've talked about flexibility or mm. lack of flexibility. Mm. In there, I also think you were talking about awareness, about how aware are you of, like, why you're partaking in these behaviors yes and then you talked about yeah these values was there anything else in there that you felt was important to mention in terms of the uh, differentiating the line between normal and not abnormal yeah um look in our current landscape of a new diet every week it's very hard Mm. to make um blanket statements about nutrition yeah and um, I'm not a dietitian so I, I wouldn't generally do that anyway unless it was a specific eating disorder context but um I mean we generally know there's there's things that you need to eat to survive which yeah. is important and um I guess that medical side is important to have a look at if you're eating in a way that is harming your physical health and you're being advised that that's that's happening um that's a big red flag to have a look Mm -hmm. at why am i doing this you know is it honestly to achieve that gold medal or whatever it is and am i okay with the consequences or is there something else going on as well um you just then brought up that mash of mixed messages that are out there now around diets and what is healthy and not healthy but I really think that if we really boiled it back there is a lot of education like you say around we all understand fruits and veggies are healthier and you know like we we all know roughly Mm. even if it's not prescriptive like roughly what is the difference between rough health health when it comes to nutrition and Mm. poorer health sure I don't personally feel that that education around what to eat is the problem. I think, especially in my year and the years that came before us, it is a lot to do with some of those awareness of those risk factors that we talked about earlier. You know, I look back at my schooling and there was no education around healthy um, social media behaviour. There was no education around emotional intelligence. Like there, there, there was so – it was very, very much math, science, <laughs> English. Whereas now I think there is a bit more awareness coming into schools around this importance of alternative education. Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I'd even say um, in terms of education – Again, we have to be careful. I don't know if this is off track, but we have to be careful about the way that we speak about food because I think there can be um, potentially damage done by someone coming into a school and saying, you must eat your fruits and veggies, your your fats and your carbohydrates. Mm. Because for a person, a child that has some risk factors of black and white thinking and perfectionism, you can see how that then itself oh, yeah. might go out of control. <laughs> oh, yeah. What we really need to be teaching is education around the role of food in our life and its effect on our body the importance of flexibility and having a generally balanced approach to um the way that 
we we eat food you know it's not yeah. just nutrition it's for um celebrations yes just because you don't feel like that piece of cake at that party it's you may decide to have that because it's a socially acceptable thing to do and it's okay to feel good about that fine about the problem happens when um you know you don't you 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 struggle with that Mm. um for whatever reason so yeah i think there's a lot to be said from stepping away from specific nutrition gut you know exact um black and white ways of viewing Mm. it um, that's what I can hear dietitians <laughs> saying. Well, of course you've you know got to teach healthy eating, and I'm I'm not saying that we don't, but the way that we do that is is important. Having yeah. um, flexibility around that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I you know I think we talked about that social or environmental factors that come into play, but I reckon when I really am honest about my own experience and this actually then happened for a number of other girls who were involved in it was it the triggers were back when I was swimming mm. as an elite athlete um, which was my original background and the coaches one day took us aside and made the whole squad stand up and then went sit down if you've had a biscuit in the last two weeks sit down if you've had ice cream wow. sit down and they went through everything until there was one girl left standing and then they said that they reiterated that they were going to redo this in a couple of weeks and that we were all to sort of, I guess, behave mm, yeah. in inverted commas. Um, and so, and then after that um, came the skin fold testing. Yeah. And we were 13, 14, I think there were a few 15, 16-year-olds in this group. It's such an influential age. Yes. And for so many of us we went on to have a disordered relationship with food and that was only then for me perpetuated in that athletics world Mm -hmm. where it was quite acceptable to be thin and strong as we were talking about earlier but um I guess when we're then talking about that fine line and some of the signs and symptoms that Mm. can appear and can help people to distinguish between that sort of I don't like normal and abnormal Mm. but you know what I mean that fine line that we're walking I feel like for women, um, we have one big red flag and that's that amenorrhea mm. or the lack of a menstrual cycle or regular menstrual cycle. Um, do you see that also as a, as a big red flag for women? Absolutely. Um, it is, it's a red flag um, because it is a thing, by the stage that that happens, um, there's some... St- significant processes that have happened in the body so well before the loss of regular periods um there may be a physical problem consequence of the eating disorder so it's it's quite um it's quite late stage when it gets to the loss oh, really? of a period in, in the, bre- the, yeah, the broad okay. context of, yeah because i sometimes come across people say oh well you know i still have my period so it's all fine oh. and the reality is that's not true in terms of physical um, impacts this is especially um, important to understand for adolescents. So uh, dur- during that time, there's a whole lot of um, hormonal, physical changes that are happening with the um, production of different hormones through the brain, etc. And unfortunately, we're starting to um, find that when you start messing with hormonal development at that age the consequences can be very far-reaching even if one returns to normal um, eating and does not have an eating disorder later so basically 
the loss of the period is signifying that um, the way that our bones grow and, and um, retain important nutrients are, ha- has been lost. Mm. So we know that young women who lose their period for a long period of time and um, they're at much, much higher risk for um, osteopenia and osteoporosis. Is, is that from the damage that happened in the years or months or years of absence of their menstrual cycle or is that is what you're saying also about even after it returns that process is, can be abnormal? So, yeah, I haven't probably been as clear. But at any point, if a woman of any age loses their period because um, of the restriction of calories or over-exercise, that can have direct um, impacts on their fertility and their hormonal structure that may then go on to impact the ability to have children, etc. But what we know is that, that when that occurs at that formative adolescent period of, mm. for instance, 12 to 15 mm-hmm. or thereabouts, um, you're, you're stopping, you're getting in the way, you're disrupting important changes that are happening, so puberty, that may never recover. Mm. Um, and hormonally um, will may, for some people, not everyone, but for some people, if severe enough, may, may never recover from. Mm. That's really, really interesting. That's more detailed than my own understanding is around that topic so you talked about bone health Mm -hmm. um and children Mm -hmm. and the ability to have children Mm -hmm. are there any other risks that come from amenorrhea and also is it just low caloric intake Mm -hmm. or is there other you know um thinking about risk factors towards amenorrhea Mm -hmm. such as just really heightened stress for a period of time yes. i'm just wondering because obviously the cortisol pathway can steal from the feminine pathways sure so yeah just wondering if we could go through that a bit more so there's a whole i'm, I'm not a doctor i'm no, not a medical professional fine. so yeah, i'll probably keep it that. more um brief than if i was mm-hmm. but yes there's a whole lot of complicated brain um changes that happen when you restrict calories and exercise or have a great or do a lot of exercise or have a great amount of stress in your life. Um, and that can have broad-reaching consequences. Some of the very clear ones are the, the loss of the period and um, poor, weak bone structure. There is potentially a whole host of other impacts as well. And um, I, as, I, you know, as I've spoken about before, we're still at the, the very early stages of understanding mm. eating disorders. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. No, and I respect that you're coming, your experience is more with the psychological side of it, but I feel that just being able to even raise the word amenorrhea mm. in this discussion is really, really important because so many women do struggle with this. And what I did want to say on that is, you know, it would be not helpful to say if, you, you know, you've lost your period, then you definitely have an eating disorder. I mean, no, we can't put those two together. It is a big red flag and I would consult very heavily with your health professionals about it. And even if it's there's no eating disorder present and it's been lost from stress 
or a lot of exercise, having a really serious think about whether um, that's a consequence that you're willing to to pay, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and, you know, children might not be on your mind now, but that might be something that you yeah, want later. Right. Um, or imagining that you could walk into a room and trip on the tiniest thing and then you've got a broken arm. So there are far-reaching consequences regardless of whether there's an eating disorder present or not and to consult with mm. a health professional. A little bit of a side note, but I'm, I'm just curious. Has any research been done then on the impact on women in their later years? Because, I mean, eating disorders aren't just a young female thing. I mean, they're more prevalent. Sure. I think we all understand that. But say in that active world i mean a lot of women in their 40s 50s 60s mm-hmm. are incredibly active are there repercussions at that point to do with female hormones or? absolutely yeah. yeah a lot of um a lot of people don't understand that eating disorders affect women and men across the lifespan you would be surprised when i tell people what i do for work um people will say oh so you work with young girls girls. so yeah I do and I also work with you know 70 year old women um and men so yes there's I mean um amenorrhea is not the only physical consequence of having eating disorder um there are far-reaching and serious consequences um that may not show up in a routine blood test so that's Mm. another um Thing to be aware of just because your bloods have come back normal doesn't mean that your body is not struggling mm-hmm. so your liver your kidneys your heart your heart is a huge one um you can you can experience um electrical um issues and uh, irregular heart rhythms that you may never be aware of so um Unfortunately, eating disorders has the highest mortality rate amongst mm. all eating, all illnesses, mental illnesses. Uh, and regardless of, you know, obviously anorexia, um, ha, you know, you're more at risk, but also bulimia and mm. binge eating. And there are physical consequences that can be very, very serious and not easily identified at first. Yeah, that's a, it is a scary fact that I don't think is very well understood Mm. in society is that one about the mortality of an eating disorder um so if we've then talked about that red flag for the girls of amenorrhea is there an equivalent red flag that Mm. is there for males because I've worked with a lot of males in that elite end of the sports spectrum um, one was a, a gentleman aiming for 24-hour racing which i still don't understand um <laughs> <laughs> the psychology of running around a track for 24 hours but um he had numerous niggles and injury concerns and sure. we got some bloods done on him and his testosterone levels were really low like mm. really low so i'm just wondering what your experience is are or the the foundation's experiences are around the male side of this story it's really interesting question and we don't actually hear a lot about it (laughs) even from a professional perspective yeah um it and i think that's partly because um it is not as obvious and clear as something like amenorrhea um but yes males also experience life-threatening um, at times consequences of eating disorders for instance 
um, imbalances with hormones mm-hmm. such as testosterone, um, as well as um, osteoporosis, mm-hmm. um, loss of libido. That's a tricky one because it can happen for a lot of different reasons, but um, libido being linked with hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely heart is a huge one that can happen as well. Feeling cold, dry skin. So the same physical side effects that affect women apart from amenorrhea are going to affect men as well with the slightly mm-hmm. um, different hormonal outcome I suppose yeah but I think we need a lot more research in that area to yeah be yeah because I must imagine it it must be interesting for you on the psychological side of this discussion in particular around men is that there's also a different culture around males mm-hmm. about reaching out for help mm-hmm. and speak up stay chatty you know is a classic example of that working with men with depression that you know there's a lot more encouragement for males to try and get assistance but yeah, what are your experiences with men stepping up and asking yeah. for help? Um, definitely, I would say that there seems to be more stigma for men, um, even more so with something like anorexia or bulimia than binge eating. Mm. Um, we know that actually about half of those people struggling with binge eating are men. So there's a huge proportion there. Um, less for women... Um, less for bulimia and anorexia, uh, but they still do experience it. And their experience of the illnesses can be different from women. And so reaching out for support and help can be especially challenging um, when perhaps some providers aren't aware of the differences in that person's experience. Mm. You know, so what I mean is um, a provider might have a support group that is filled with 20 women and one man, one man, and the topics are very, you know, female-oriented, and so that's 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 not okay. We need to change the way that we think about treatment um, to incorporate and accommodate men's experience of recovery, and that's something that we're very much trying to do here at the Butterfly. Start thinking about um, and start investigating what men's experiences are and how they would like to receive help. And I feel like that discussion needs to happen when it comes to the physical activity Mm. side of um, not just this equation, but in general, that I feel like there is a bit of a stigma that men are strong, Mm. men can cope, men can do these loads, whereas women are a bit more fragile and therefore need to be more aware of recovery and self-compassion and some of these other concepts. But yeah, in that male world, there's a huge prevalence of overtraining and mm. overstressing, um, doing a lot. Uh, and I feel that discussion, it would be great to start seeing that discussion more out there. Absolutely. Um, and we're starting to see more research, which is good for, for the related topics. It's still quite controversial in its relationship to eating disorders from an academic point of view. But something like muscle dysmorphia, you know, understanding that more mm. and how that works as well as um, anabolic steroid abuse Mm. Um, there's a whole conversation um, that needs to really increase around that Mm. so maybe we can then move on to the recovery Mm. side Mm -hmm. Um, where do you start with helping someone and I also want to add in their family Mm. and support network around them Mm. to 
heal the wounds that are created through eating disorders because they can be deep yes. yeah. <clears throat> and complex. Yes. So in, in approaching that, so I'm hearing, you know, how, how do you help someone? Mm. The first thing I would say to anyone, whether they be friends or family, is realise that um, the, the best thing that, that you might be able to do is tell that person that you care mm. and that you will try and help them in the way that they want to be helped or that you you know that you can see they need to be helped so um listening to their experience not necessarily focusing on um the food and the weight if if that's not helpful for that person in that moment um, it may be more helpful for them to say i, I feel really anxious at the moment um, so, yeah, understanding that that person um, will often benefit from being told that they're cared about and that you would like to understand their world from their perspective, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think from that, you can um, really start implementing helpful, supportive things for that person. And it's going to be different for everyone. And I guess then by approaching it from that angle of like how how can we help you in a way that you feel yes. can help you is trying to give that person some ownership of their recovery that's right. process that's right rather than just poking a plate of food in front of them and exactly they need to put on weight there's caveats to that there are some forms of treatment particularly for young people that require parents or caregivers to um to feed their child essentially take a hard line right take a hard line so that's definitely an approach that needs to happen but i'm talking generally and also when we're talking about adults Mm -hmm. especially you can't it's very hard to do that with an adult um so instead of sitting down and saying why haven't you eaten it's just terrible that you haven't eaten you're getting so skinny um you just need to pull yourself together and try and do that hard line approach coming from the angle of you know i'm really concerned about you you haven't seen you seem to be yourself i've noticed that um you're feeling anxious and worried about food and your health seems to be deteriorating can we talk about that you know coming from that perspective my brain's then grappling with this discussion i can see it in um in society in general but in that more athletic Mm. environment Mm -hmm. where as Yana Pittman even talked about her story, like she was at her best for a while there. Her best being where she got to, she now comes back and says, I don't think I was anywhere near my best. But at the time she saw, I'm at my best and I have these behaviours and I'm just being careful and I'm just, you know, really focused on wanting that gold medal at the Olympic Games or crossing that finish line in a 20k race, like we were talking about if it's in the recreational sort of end. But that then that conversation would be incredibly complicated mm. yeah because a person needs to be at the right stage of change and if yeah. they're in denial or at high ambivalence pre-contemplation um there's a certain style of communication that's going to be helpful basically yeah. and someone ca- cannot recover from an eating disorder until they are ready to do so you can put them into private or public institutions and refeed them if they're underweight but if they do not want to recover they will come out and lose that weight again Mm -hmm. so there has to be for that person 
the desire for change. And so if we're talking with or working with someone that's um, not read, not at the action stage, there's no point pushing for action. Um, Because they might not even have an awareness that they have an eating disorder. And so more so the conversation and support needs to be around, hey, can we have a discussion? I'm concerned. I've noticed this. How do you feel about it? What's happening to Mm -hmm. you? And maybe that conversation's not going to result in that person going, you know what, you're right. I think I have an eating disorder. But that person may say, I'm fine. It's no problems. They might walk away from that. And part of their brain's going, oh, okay, mm. you know, maybe this isn't going like I thought it is mm. and people are concerned. And they might not come back to that for a week or two, but it's planting a seed. Mm. Dig Telford, who's a very elite, famous coach in Australia who I actually trained with for a while when I was in Canberra, was quoted as saying that he often didn't recognise mm. when the problems were happening because He's working with these people day in, day out, and it's almost like you don't notice that changes. Like a kid, you don't notice how they've yeah. grown up until you put them against a wall and measure them. You're like, wow, you know, you've grown. Uh, so it is a slow boil, and I think it's a slow boil also often for the sufferer as well that you, you're not aware of it being a problem until that slippery dip has gone a long way. Like you talked about, amenorrhea is quite late down yeah. the phase but that that red that might be the first red flag you get you might even live with amenorrhea for a while because it's deemed acceptable in your social network of mm. people who exercise so that that must be incredibly complicated to get that buy-in and yes. awareness in the, in the community it is in um and that's half that's what partly makes eating disorder recovery so difficult is that eating disorders as I mentioned before serve a function and it's about the person experiencing coming to the realization that the the costs are outweighing the benefits Mm. and that's a personal journey and it might take a long time for someone to realize that this is working in a little part of my life it's working in a way but the big picture it's not really working I also have to have the knowledge and the faith that there is a better way of doing things the knowledge yeah and I guess that's where then tying the story back a little bit that's mm-hmm. when Butterfly Foundation is really pushing your efforts is in that education and awareness of a lot of what we're talking about now yes and de-stigmatizing the space as well so that we can have those conversations um so a lot of the work that the helpline does is educating people whether it be a person experiencing their care is even a health professional who rings up and um you know letting them know something they might not have been aware of because it is such a complicated landscape mm. so how do you then distinguish when like we talked about when you can distinguish when people are starting to show the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder how do you know when you're better is it mm. that you never have that voice can that mm-hmm. voice still be there but you know how to to I guess communicate with that voice and, and um, grapple not grapple with it to negotiate that's mm-hmm. the word I'm trying to look for mm-hmm. negotiate with that yeah. voice like what is that end point that I guess we're striving for recovery is a very personal journey understanding definition and two per- people's definitions of recovery may be vastly different I guess from a health professional's perspective, there's a few different stages, generally speaking. The first is the restoration of um, medical stability. So that might 
involve um, returning weight to normal, ceasing um, purging or compensatory behaviours such as laxative, you know, stopping laxatives, etc., or reducing exercise to safe levels. So that's the first stage, getting that person medically stable. The second stage is working on the um, thoughts and behaviours and, you know, reducing and eliminating um, disordered thinking and behaviours. Often the behaviour, the reduction of behaviours comes first and it takes a lot longer for the mind to follow. So someone can have disordered thinking and not act on it. And that's a trap sometimes for carers. They say, oh, I think my loved one is all better. Little do they know that there's a battle going on every day for that person. A latter stage is um, thinking returning to to normal um, perhaps with the the knowledge that that eating disorder voice that we speak of perhaps is in the background and does pop up at stressful times and the person has the ability to go oh there's that voice and I've got to be careful of that voice and use the healthy coping strategies that I've been taught or that I know instead of the ones that I know don't lead me to a very good place and then the last ultimate potential stage of recovery is when a person um, doesn't you know wakes up perhaps one day and realize I haven't had that voice for as long as I can remember and it doesn't come into my life anymore and um, it is it is really important for people to know that full recovery is absolutely possible only you will know when you get there it doesn't say that it doesn't mean that everyone gets to that final stage and that's okay um, it's perhaps something that someone wants to work towards um, but I think we have to be careful the way that we talk about recovery because it's a very personal thing and I can't tell someone, you know, I can tell someone from a, from a DSM and medical perspective how they're going, but from that personal inward journey, mm. you know, that it has to be something that um, is meaningful for them. So to help give people context about the recovery process, is there any facts and figures roughly mm. on how long this process is take is going to take because I imagine when you're seeing someone struggling with it or you're in the depths of it yourself mm. and again going back to my own experiences once you make the decision that mm. you want to get better you want them to get better you want that for them now yes. and yeah. that's probably not possible from what we're talking about <laughs> yeah again I do really think it's worth stressing everyone's experiences different because yeah so quickly as a community we can get caught up in um what we consider normal and then people (laughs) say well I didn't have that and I feel isolated and I don't want to reach out anymore so everyone's different what we know in facts and figures is that um the earlier that a person seeks treatment Mm -hmm. the higher the likelihood of full recovery for them um the average um, length of illness for something like anorexia is seven years. Wow. So that's not to say that someone has to go through it for seven years before they recover, but when you've got looking at the averages, that's what it's coming down to. Um, some people will experience for much, much longer than that, you know, for decades or the whole life. And others may have an experience of two years, a year, six months even. Um, but, yeah, that's the context that we've got to place recovery and it's it's going to be a long journey that has many stages of back and forth you know recovery can 
a person can be in action and doing really well and making gains in recovery and then they can slip back for a while, um, regress and relapse and then start their journey again. So if we're then saying that one of the greatest ways to help someone or to help yourself is to create buy-in from mm. the, the sufferer, where then is the first place of assistance for people? Is it, it should people start with that general practitioner or is it coming through, say, the Butterfly Foundation that's very specialised in this? Like, I guess you don't want to kind of scare people early on mm. and you also want them to get the help that they need at that point. So what, what's yeah. your experience, Julia, with that? Um, I'll definitely answer that in a second. I just had a, a thought as you were mm-hmm. speaking then. I really want to stress that it's not just anorexia that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm spending a lot of time talking about it, and that's because there's quite severe um, physical, mental um, consequences, as is with bulimia and binge eating. Um, it's what most research, I would say, has, has been done as well. But I am also referring to bulimia and, and binge eating very, mm. very much so. And those illnesses require just as much support and they're just as important to get treatment for than than, than for anorexia. So it's yeah. really important for me to yeah. clarify that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of where a person goes as their first port of call, I think... It depends on the person's own unique uh, structure, support structure. Support structure. So if they have a GP that they're really close with and they trust and feel uh, open um, and not, you know, quick on, on judgments or anything like that, that might be a great place for that person to start because they trust that person. But for a lot of people, they don't perhaps have a GP that they go to regularly or um, feel would be a good port of call, and that's fine. So it might be um, a trusted adult or professional that they go to. For a lot of people, they don't have those those trusted close people. So something like the Butterflies National Helpline, I would say is great first stop um, because we can provide to anyone affected by eating disorder whether it's a lived experience or whether you're going through it your loved one is your friend is um, maybe your your athlete is etc anyone um, can ring up for a free confidential chat about what's going on you know whether it be getting some ideas for action Information, referrals, brief counselling for those that would, you know, are interested in that and need that in that moment. But it can be, yeah, a first port of call of, hey, I'm really concerned about this person. I don't even know if they have an eating disorder. This is what's happening. Can you point me in the right direction? Hmm. Or a person themselves experiencing saying, oh, my friend said that I should call today. I don't really even know if I should or not. Mm. Um, This is what I'm struggling with. I don't even know if I want to talk about it. And that's a great start as well. It doesn't have to be, okay, I'm ready for change. Yeah, and then I think, I imagine that for quite a while there can be that tiptoeing around the, the elephant in the room, as, mm-hmm. <laughs> as my mentor talked about it for a while, that it, it's not easy to just get straight to the point at, no, at the middle. not at all. And yeah. I, there's a core process that happens with eating disorders, which is ambivalence. So that the internal process of someone going, I do want to get better, but I don't want to get better, mm-hmm. which is coming back to that function understanding. There are things that an eating disorder does for a person 
yes, has serious consequences. But um, a person might feel this is where eating disorders is quite different from other illnesses. They might feel that they like their eating disorder and they don't want to get rid of it. But sometimes, 1% of the time, they go, oh, actually, this is controlling my life. And so they may shift between those two states for a long time. Mm. Um, And that's part of the journey, you know, of realising what's really happening for that person and the costs associated. So, yeah, it Mm. can take a while. So the hotline is expanding, is that correct? Yeah, so the the helpline has been previously been opened um, from 8 a.m. in the morning to 9 p.m. Monday to Friday, but really excitingly, we've now, from the 26th of February this year, we're going to be able to offer um, seven days a week, so Monday to, to Sunday, from 8 a.m. until midnight, because we realise that, first of all, um, that's Australian Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. There's a whole Western Australia and other states that miss out on that evening time if we close 9pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. But also, eating disorders don't stop at 9pm. They don't stop on the weekends. <laughs> so, And people often aren't available to chat to anyone until perhaps the weekend. So it's very exciting that we're able to offer um, help and support and advice across that time, the new times. And is the helpline government-funded, grant-funded, donation-funded? The helpline is funded by the Australian government Mm -hmm. and we are a team of health professionals, so not volunteers, um, but specialised health professionals such Mm. as psychologists, social workers, counsellors, GP, um, that are trained to deliver specialist support in these disorders. What an asset, I mean, to the community, especially when we go back to those figures of 1 in 20. I mean, that just blows my mind. And yet I'm here in what is a beautiful workplace with quite a few people here, but it's not a big premises, um, nor a big team to be dealing with such an enormous, complex Mm -hmm. soup that we talked Mm -hmm. about earlier. So, Julia... I guess to get towards summary and closing, I just wondered what your final, if you had one final message for my audience and the audience listening today or our audience, what would that be? Mm, Great question. I guess it would be if you are struggling with food and exercise or you know someone that is, um, you're not alone unfortunately this this illness is is prevalent and and not just um, the formal diagnosis disordered eating is prevalent so you're not alone and there is help available take a little time to get it and to get the right help there's help available and there is a way of doing things that's better for for you and um, that can ultimately lead to a happier life essentially brilliant to women Mm. advice or last a last comment for women yeah I guess it it, yeah that's a big one (laughs) Um, I think social media um, both for women and men obviously but social media um, is a huge influencing factor at the moment for the way that we feel about ourselves and if helpful to have a think about 
the role of social media and how that influences your thoughts and your behaviours and just have a, a check-in, you know, a, a service, car service for yourself around mm-hmm. what's happening for you at the moment um, and what's your thoughts, what's your opinions, what are your values when it comes to the thin ideal or the thin fit ideal, what, what do you feel about that? I love that about a car service, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that just taking a pause and actually I was on um, ABC radio earlier this week talking about an article that had just come out around um, health and New Year's resolutions and how hard they are to stick to and I, I did talk about just hitting the pause button mm-hmm. for a while and, and just using that end of year, like it doesn't have to be end of year but it is a great opportunity just to slow mm. down and just go where am I at, where am I going, is this serving me? Yes <laughs> yeah. and although it can be scary at times, do that truthfully, um, doing it truthfully to yourself, you don't have to talk to anyone, you don't have to tell anyone but just having an honest reflection even though it's hard can be helpful. Love that truthfulness is actually and honesty is my greatest value mm. you know after having learned all of this yeah um i don't want to be discriminative so what about men yeah 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 i think uh that's really important for me to speak to a population that have been not focused on in terms of eating disorders or ignored that eating disorders do happen to men disordered eating happens with men and um, if you find it hard to to reach out because of the story around eating disorders and women that the narrative that we have at the moment please persist because you are just as worthy of treatment and recovery and getting um, a relationship with food and exercise that's healthy as anyone else completely agree and the word that springs to my mind in that is vitality Mm. you know just as worthy of living with vitality and self-compassion absolutely as everyone else and the final one is just to i put down on my notes parents Mm. but i feel like having had this discussion i want to extend that to support networks what would be your last message of advice or just message in general to to that community of people? I would say education is an important starting point if you're interested to to know more and to help someone. Have Mm. a read on the Butterfly website or the National Eating Disorder Collaboration website. There's a lot of information because that information can really support you to support other people. Um, and to understand what's really going on. Brilliant. And in the show notes for today, I'll put up a whole host of resources and links um, because I feel that having this conversation, whilst it's been incredibly important to me to be laying open my hand um, of cards and you yours and joining them together and having this conversation, it's it's just as important then to, to do something about it mm. um, and to take action if you feel that there's... Um, a need or a room to take action um, for me my also final note on all of this is that from my own experience learning about what you do that is compassionate that makes you feel more at ease in your own skin is incredibly important and I don't think I remember um, this was the second funny part of my 
uh, initiation into the psychological road to recovery, Juliet, was that my mentor said to me, or asked me actually, he said, honey, what do you do for self-compassion? And I racked my brains and then I was, ah, bingo, like tomorrow booked a massage. And I was really proudly saying, yeah, and she's really great. And he goes, no, but is that for recovery from the hard work, like the training element, or is that for self-compassion? And that simple statement completely stumped me Mm. because I didn't understand that there was a difference when it was coming from, you know, that athletic pushing your heart and pushing your body and striving for excellence element of it so that that was a huge um, learning point the second Mm -hmm. and final take home for me to share at this point in the conversation was that I am my first port of call in recovery was actually with a dietitian that Mm -hmm. I really respected and she sat me and my mum down actually and I remember her quite clearly saying to my mum even though this was a number of years ago was that for the for my mum it was really important for her to realize that this is an illness Mm -hmm. and that there is a very strong difference between honey or the sufferer and the anorexia or insert whichever eating disorder you want to mention in there but but the illness Um, and I think it really helped me as well in that understanding that all those behaviors and thought processes that I'd come to not like about myself were actually in the illness box, not in this is Hanny. And that, that was really important. Absolutely. That's a core understanding, you know, a core part of recovery for your, those experiencing and those around the person. Hmm. Yeah. Julia, thank you for your time today. My absolute pleasure. And your knowledge. And I really hope that together we, and, I, you know, we can do something with this podcast but also I'm really looking forward to seeing where the Butterfly Foundation's work continues to reach out to. Great, thank you so much. Thank you.